Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. In our first episode of Engendered, we reference the importance of recognizing and advocating for gender justice reforms alongside other forms of social justice, including environmental and economic justice. On today's episode, we address the intersection of these issues, and in particular with respect to migrants and refugees who are at risk of increased illness, lost productivity and wages, disease, and other public health threats, and even death. In addition, Climate change patterns and natural disasters, which are fundamental drivers of migration, present a social justice problem because of the greater risk of negative health outcomes for women and children from lack of food, nutrition, education, and exposure to trauma and treatment from these conditions. Female migrants and their children are also subject to higher risk of human and sex trafficking. Even amongst the U.S.-Mexico border, there have been reports that Border Patrol agents, ICE, and private detention facility employees have been sexually assaulting refugee women and children with little accountability. Economists and human rights advocates have long been aware that when you educate a woman, you educate and lift up a whole community. On today's episode, our guest is Kat Song co-founder and general counsel of ExelCoin, a blockchain startup creating solutions for refugees. ExelCoin is a peer-to-peer marketplace for refugee integration and offers solutions including paying for tutoring, mentorship, or nano-work tasks. Kat founded the startup with her brother James in response to the Rohingya crisis in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. A longtime advocate for anti-human trafficking initiatives, immigration, and legal rights for low-income populations, Kat is here to speak with us today about her work with ExelCoin and how it is one part of the solution to address the environmental, economic, and gender justice needed for all migrants and refugees. So welcome, Kat. Hi, how are you? Uh, thanks for joining us and uh, being on the show to talk about such an important area of the world. I think many of our listeners probably have heard about some element of at least some of the topics that we're addressing, whether it's blockchain, the migrant crisis, uh, refugees. But I think it would be helpful if we could just start with an overview of your background, what you did before you started ExelCoin, and how did you become aware of the need for your project? Well, I'm originally from New York, coming from a real estate finance background. So I essentially helped uh, real estate developers find financing for their really, really large real estate projects. And one day my brother came to me, you know, he's been living in Myanmar for about six or seven years had some sort of legal problem with his company and uh, came to New York to ask me about it about last October. And so after looking through all the information, doing an audit of his company, I started seeing what it was they were actually doing. My brother helps support 86 orphans in Yangon, Myanmar. And so um, I was just so impressed with his work and so impressed with the fact that um, here's this company with this really odd 
goal of using technology to help the Rohingya refugees of Myanmar and Bangladesh, that I just kind of knew that I had to be a part of that. How did your brother get involved in that work? Oh, you know, it's really odd, but I don't know that much about it. I just know that he had been living in the area for a long time. And then, you know, he was just this really annoying, you know, he's my little brother. So he's just a very annoying, um, you know, <laughs> kid uh, in my mind. And one day he comes home and he's got pictures of lots of little little kids that I thought, you know, were his. <laughs> so I asked him about it, um, going like, uh, you know, it's there there's something you want to tell me? Is there something uh-huh. going on? Because, you know, he would have uh, pictures of like 16 different babies on his telephone. And so I just thought it was the oddest thing. But yes, it, just his work was very impressive. And I was very surprised and very proud uh-huh. because I had not seen him for a long time. And he just showed up one day, just this completely different person with all these responsibilities. Were you aware of the Rohingya crisis before your brother brought it to your attention? No, not at all. I was really shocked. I had never even heard of the Rohingya at all. Am I pronouncing it I correctly? I don't know. Everybody pronounces it okay. differently. <laughs> so it's Rohingya or Rohingya. Some people call it the Rohingya, which I used to call it the Rohingya, but that's way too many syllables. So it's just, it's not <laughs> convenient. So I would okay. recommend against that one. Now would be a good time for us to share, for you to share with our listeners just some background about who they are and what the crisis is. But I guess there's there's a, some debate by the Myanmar government as right. to there being a crisis at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's very complicated and it's hard for me to understand it because it just, I'm really shocked at how an entire government could do this to a, a people, you know. And the crisis comes in that it's said or it's believed by the Rohingya and everybody else that they've been a part of the land. They've they've been on that land since the 8th century. You know, so they are indigenous to Myanmar. It's their land. But for some reason, the government hates them, doesn't like them, wants to say, you know, these guys, we can't call them Rohingya. You know, we will call them Bengals because they're not really from Myanmar. They're nothing like us. They passed a law, an actual law in the 70s that stripped these people of their nationality. So now you have people who are, by law, without a nation, without citizenship, without any rights. And, you know, uh, I don't know this for sure, but I believe the law also forbade them from having certain types of jobs, from having access to uh, education that is anyhow related to or funded by the government. So it just precluded them from a lot of different, very, very important things. Wow. So since the 70s, have do you know what precipitated this mass migration in most recent years or in most recent months, rather? I'm not sure exactly. I, it does seem to have escalated quite a lot. But uh, it, it's my understanding that it's been ongoing for years and years and years, mm-hmm. you know. And so you have a company called ExoCoin that seeks to address some of the problems that this group is facing. Can you talk about what the specific pain points are that ExoCoin addresses? Oh, certainly. Um, Well, the history of ExoCoin is it started off as a project called Halcyon Beads or Exo Beads, where essentially we hired several skilled workers, you know, just a handful or a teeny tiny company to go into the refugee camps to help some of the Rohingya women 
learn how to make jade bracelets or little pieces of jewelry, how to make them, how to put them together, how to market them, how to sell them. So they can go ahead and help use this to help support their families. And it was such a successful, such a successful program that we had to think about how we could possibly scale this because this took a long time. It was a, a very, very labor intensive process. So the idea was to use technology to turn around and somehow be able to distribute that technology or that knowledge to a large group of people all at the same time. And hopefully have it be done in such a way that there's no interference by a third party, you know, to not have a government come in and say, you know what, this is illegal, you shouldn't have access to this, or I'm going to stop whatever process this is, you know, something that actually puts some more power into their hands. Well, who are you distributing and selling these uh, bracelets to? Oh, um, it's actually very, very low. Jade is a huge import in China. It's actually one of the largest exports out of Myanmar. Wow. So, uh, yeah, last October, someone had quoted me saying that in China, jade is worth $3,000 an ounce. So essentially more than gold, right? <laughs> wow. So, yeah, it's very, very impressive. Okay. And I guess in terms of blockchain technology, many of our listeners probably this is the first time they're being introduced to it. Right. So could you just briefly highlight what it is, what are the features within blockchain technology that make it suitable for this solution that ExelCoin has created? Right. Well, the promise of blockchain technology is that it's a decentralized system. So it does put the power of, I guess, the computing into the hands of the user and not into a central entity. So I'm sure everybody's familiar with the term cryptocurrency. That is a very small use case based on blockchain technology. So I think a lot of people get very confused as to the difference between crypto and blockchain. And essentially, blockchain is the underlying technology and crypto is built on a blockchain. And blockchain is what enables it to, I guess, live and survive and to be mined and to be transferred back and forth to people without worrying that a government is going to come in and say, you know what, this is completely worthless. You're not going to have access to this and actually write those edicts into the code. They're not able to do that. Mm -hmm. So if they do pass a law, it'll be a very political and external thing. But the whole cryptocurrency system will still go on. And so, again, the promise here is that it's essentially untouchable by any third party. And, and so there's additional features is the trustless system. Can, right. can you speak about that as well? How uh, that feature is beneficial? Not having a centralized party to, to control all of the information. Right. So it's essentially like a crowdsourcing of an idea or just, you know, it's kind of like how Yelp works, mm -hmm. right? You have a whole bunch of people giving their opinions and you'd like to think that one opinion is weighted more than another, but at the end of the day, people look at the system as a whole. Mm -hmm. So the trustless system is like a, a full-on reputation system where all this data gets recorded across many, many different people and you get a, a look at the I guess, the reputation or the, the look of the environment on the whole. Mm -hmm. And what about the distributed ledger framework? How does that benefit the 
people that you're trying to serve here, the migrants? Well, for us, the way we have been using it to benefit them is we have an educational platform that's run by an AI engine, artificial intelligence engine. So what it does is we want to deliver education to a large amount of people, but these people have not had access to actual education as we know it. Mm-hmm. You know, they've never had a teacher stand over them and say, I can see by the look on your face that you understand this material or that you don't understand this material or that maybe I need to explain this part a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So we built an engine that is able to recognize the facial expressions and also it's able to track your uh, retinas to track uh, the amount of attention that you're paying to every single part of the program. And it makes decisions based on the data it collects on you. It decides whether or not you're interested or you have a certain, I guess, facility with a particular part of the education. So it'll, I guess, maybe speed up or decide to speed up that part of the coursework, right? Or maybe slow down if it feels like you're not really understanding or not really paying attention you know, essentially bringing the idea of having a teacher to a group of people that have never really had that. So just to clarify, one of the features of your app is to provide education or tutoring to the migrants. Yes, we're hoping for more job skill type educational coursework. Uh, Right now we have a whole series on Rohingya English, English Rohingya videos, and that's what we're basing our pilot on. So, yes, things that will help them, I guess, succeed in the world. So you're trying to build skills to prepare for when they have the opportunity to actually use them and and, um, make money. To make money. You know, I'm hoping personally, uh, again, this is not, you know, something that's widely believed within my company, but I'm hoping to also have a system or, you know, a series where it teaches people about themselves, teaches them about self-awareness and maybe about the ideas of self-sovereignty. It it just gives them an overall more of an education so that we are able to give the next generation the tools to lead their group out of whatever troubles they're having. In what ways does your product offer that teaching of self-awareness and self-sovereignty. Oh, it doesn't, it doesn't currently. So oh, that's I what see. I personally so am hoping I know. <laughs> product roadmap? Are you, are it's you? It's not, it's not, it's not currently in the, you know, I'm not able to convince uh, other people in my company that this is the way to go, but you know, secretly, okay, <laughs> this is what I I'm see. hoping for. And I've got my fingers crossed. And, you know, even with delivery of skills, we're essentially the blind leading the blind. You know, I come from finance. My brother has a tech background. You know, most of the guys we work with have a tech background. And now you're asking us to figure out how to teach an entire people. Right. You know, to determine right here and now what, how we're going to raise the next generation or the generation beyond us. And right. the decisions we make today will essentially have a huge impact on the next 10 years, the next 20 years. Well, I think it's, it sounds good to me that you're interested in helping them develop that self-awareness because... In the U.S., a lot of what education providers, you know, educators do, workforce development providers do, is usually that workforce providers are working with groups of opportunity youth, potentially, or adults who are in transition between work and school or taking a break. And there's 
there are there it's always good to start with some sort of self-assessment whether it's a combination of personality test or interests and values inventory tests where you're you're trying to align what your skills are your interests and the career paths and functional areas that are a good fit that will hopefully generate you know fulfilling job opportunities and growth right, right. and i personally think that there's not enough of that in our traditional education systems because everybody's sort of on a fast track towards you know the next level in their education it's um, like the fast food you know ongoing cycle where nobody really thinks about it and they just go through all the steps yeah yeah so i think it's great that you're 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 you have this vision right <laughs> fingers um, crossed I, yeah i hope we make it and and then your your exocoin is described also as a peer to peer marketplace for refugee integration, offering solutions around mentorship and nano work tasks. Can right. you talk about what men, what the mentorship and nano work tasks? Oh, certainly. Reference. Um, well, basically, it, the system that we've built is called the Excel chain. Mm-hmm. And so, how do you deliver technology to refugees, people living in refugee camps? You know, do they even have power? Do they have cell phones? So, uh, what we've done is we're laying the framework for additional technologies to be distributed to them. So the first thing that we're distributing, you know, is getting the ExoChain platform up and running. And then the first thing is the education content being delivered to them. The second thing, after we have this, I guess, distribution channel across the entire refugee population, is the ability to give them identities, the ability to give them, you know, things that they wouldn't have once their citizenship had been stripped away from them. So the ability to bank, the ability to have money and transfer money and to have a job and be paid because right now they don't really have that much of an infrastructure for that. So it sounds like a lot of the activities that your product addresses really are around transacting day to day. You know, make make being able to sustain like food, housing, and, and in the future, shelter. Right. I All mean, the things yeah. we take for granted. Yeah. Because um, again, you know, you're talking about a refugee who has no nationality, mm-hmm. uh, no citizenship. They have no home. If they have a job, they'd have to be paid by cash if they were allowed to work. Any type of work they do would have to be very, very local. They have no ability to open a bank account. They have no actual um, identifying information, like what, what we would have, social mm-hmm. security numbers, home addresses, things like that. One of the promises of blockchain technology is credentialing and authenticating identity. So uh, I'm guessing your product also addresses that by, by the initial sort of usage. Yes, it does sort of. Uh, there are lots of other companies doing identification and also identification of refugees. Mm-hmm. We don't specifically do that, but we have the platform that will allow them to come in and kind of, I guess, and, and to integrate, integrate kind of like an API. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Great. And how have you been able to attract funding to this pro- project so far? From people who have been very, very sympathetic towards the Rohingya clause. And it's been, you know, since the beginning, it's been a little bit scary because this is not a popular cause. 
even amongst people who are uh, supporters of refugees. Also, it's not looked upon very kindly by the Myanmar government or the Chinese government. So we've had to take our investments in secretly, you know, very, very anonymously. Our developers have had to work very anonymously. We've had to be very, very careful as to how we conduct our business. Are you saying being careful in the U.S. or while you're in Myanmar itself trying to attract interest? Uh, Trying to attract interest. Also, the investors that we've attracted so far have been near that area. Oh, I either see. Within okay, Myanmar within the or, Asian region. Exactly. I exactly. see. Okay. And so it's we've had to keep it very, very quiet, but uh, we've had very strong support. I would think because your product extends to all refugees and migrants that there would be greater international support for it because this crisis is international. Obviously, look, take a look at what's happening you know, with our crisis at the border between the U.S. Exactly. And, and Mexico. Exactly. It's really shocking, actually. And Again, my entry into this journey has been you know, started last October. And before that, I had no idea that any of this existed. I have no insight at all into this world other than what I've experienced. Mm-hmm. And what I've seen is pretty surprising and shocking and a little bit disappointing. Mm. Well, very disappointing. And it's that there are all these aid organizations, you know, very recognizable aid organizations with all sorts of uh, acronyms that you would think would be more supportive of the cause, but they have their own issues, right? I guess they're so lar- you know, their organizations are so large that they've got their own bureaucracies and their own, I guess, mandates to deal with and are not as effective, I think, in rolling out or helping others to roll out aid to these more little known causes, and it's been surprising, too, because we've reached out to some foundations and, you know, I have finance experience, so I know a lot of these funds have their mandates and they they have, you know, lists of what they can do and what they can't do. But what's really surprising to me is uh, geographically how much Burma has been ignored, Myanmar mm-hmm. has been ignored, mm-hmm. you know, so you have foundations helping refugees, but helping refugees only in Africa, or only in a specific region, or again, only going after those refugees or causes that are very popular for the day. Mm. On the returns continuum framework between classic investing on one side and philanthropy on the other, where investors are expecting profitable and competitive returns on the investing side, and positive social and or environmental impact on the philanthropic side, where does your project fall and how are you positioning its value to investors? Oh, so social impact as an investment space is really interesting, really, really interesting. A hedge fund manager friend of mine explained it to me saying that a social impact fund or a social impact investor would be doubly careful in regards to I guess, underwriting or taking a look at a particular investment because they have a huge chip on their shoulder, right? Social impact as an investment class is about 10 years old, I'm told. So they have a lot of, I guess, that they're the new kid on the block. They have to be extremely careful about how they go about 
they're uh, investing. They have to do really, really well because everyone is looking at the space and expecting them to fail. So that's that's one issue with the social impact space. And the other issue is uh, the difference between the nonprofit and the profit. And so part of what we do at ExelCoin is we made sure that we were a for-profit company, not because we're excited about the profits, but because we wanted this to be a self-sustaining model, something that could, I guess, support itself moving forward. So that that was the big hope there. In terms of the reporting on the social and environmental performance of impact investments, there is a common language for that called IRIS, Impact Reporting and Investment Standards. It was developed by the Global Impact Investment Network. I'm wondering, what are some of your social impact objectives or metrics that you are measuring and that the in, the investors of ExelCoin are looking towards seeing a change in? Well, we're still in very early stages. So uh, from the very beginning, it's it was more like, well, we're in a huge rush because we're seeing all this violence and all this stuff going on, and we're not going to be able to go home and sleep in our beds tonight mm-hmm. until we go and talk to 10 more investors or 20 more investors, mm-hmm. knowing that this is going on today, right now. Mm-hmm. So in regards to future, I guess, uh, performance measures, we would look at how well our program is helping refugees to integrate into society. Governments spend a ridiculous amount of money, and I mean every government, spends a ridiculous amount of money supporting vulnerable populations, refugees, people of that ilk. And the hope is that by integrating, by teaching uh, these vulnerable populations how to help themselves and how to be self-sustaining, it actually relieves stress from that system and helps save government's money. And we're talking billions and very soon to be trillions of dollars saved by governments. So, yeah, I think that this is a very, very profitable and very worthwhile cause. It's just long term. It sounds like from how you described some of the features of your product, you're, act- you're helping to provide the migrants access to education, access to skills and information, financial services. Is that right? That's right. And, and ultimately equality and empowerment. Yes, that's the hope. And um, again, also to relieve pressure off the governments that are forced to support them. So you're helping the governments invest in their future um, workforce. Future workforce. A future consumer base. Right, to save on uh, tax money being spent on programs like this, on whatever welfare programs that are offered to refugees, Mm -hmm. you know, to make that... Obsolete, essentially. Ultimately, you're helping to increase economic growth and productivity. Absolutely. Did the investors see it that way? Because to me, it sounds pretty, pretty clear. I, I think it's pretty clear too. I mean, uh, when somebody walked me through the numbers about how much certain governments were spending, it was pretty shocking that governments haven't sat themselves down and said, you know, this is a huge waste of our money. You know, this is a, a huge area that we're spending uh, right now. And there's something we have to do about that because it's, a, it's not an insignificant cost. It's, it's huge. 
we could take a look at our own country and I could see how the challenges yes. um, may, may always be there depending on the political wind of the day. And just this week, Angela Merkel, in order to survive, agrees to border camps for migrants in Germany. Right. That's yeah. yeah. So, you know, people, even if they're against certain policies, in theory, they might have to capitulate because of political pressure. Right. Right. And so I, I'm wondering what kind of safeguards do you have to try to mitigate against those political winds and tides in order to keep attracting investment and interest in this project? What we've been doing up till now is just being remaining really anonymous working with investors who are able to work with us, you know, who don't have contrary mandates. Also, keeping our technology on the blockchain helps a lot. It takes all the decision-making out of central source. So you don't have one person making all the decisions saying, you know what, we're going to move all these people out of our country or we're going to put all of these people in a camp. You're essentially giving power back to a population that is very, very vulnerable. At the same time, aren't there also ethical implications for putting their digital identities on the blockchain? I mean, as an advocate and violence against women and as a survivor, I'm interested in any kinds of tools or technologies that empower and uplift survivors and certainly blockchain's ability to ensure trust and governance and interoperability create a platform for efficient tracking and exchange. But for survivors, you know, in the U.S., I know that digital technologies has also been a double-edged sword, you know, in terms of the ability to be tracked. And and what are your thoughts on the trade-offs of privacy, the privacy that this technology does not offer compared to its benefits? Well, I think its benefits definitely outweigh, you know, especially with what we do, its benefits definitely outweigh. So we don't have much of an ethical issue because our ethics lean towards helping a people who essentially don't have many people helping them. But yeah, I think a lot of people neglect to talk about the evils of blockchain. And there are some, you know, they're very, very serious drawbacks to having something on the blockchain. The fact that in certain instances, it's very resource intensive, you know, not good for the environment in regards to mining of cryptocurrency, very bad for the environment because it's very energy intensive. Also, the ability to be identified. On one hand, it sounds like a good thing. On the other hand, for some people, probably not the best thing. Well, doesn't that also get addressed when you are providing permission and access to your identity or aspects of your identity and the transactions that you may engage in. It depends on the, how, how the distributed app is developed, that there's, there are those checks in place, but ultimately it still, in theory, can be hacked. Well, hacked, yes. And for blockchain, it's my hope that it is able to be hacked because right now it's not. And the biggest plus for blockchain is its immutability, and that's also its biggest drawback, mm-hmm. right? So let's use the example of putting medical records on the blockchain. Now, as an idea, it's fantastic, and there are lots of companies out there trying to do that. So you 
whenever you visit the doctor, whatever goes into your uh, medical file is actually recorded onto the blockchain. So whenever you go to a different doctor, your medical files are carried, in essence, with you and not staying at that particular doctor's. So you can move from doctor to doctor, not worry about anybody having to update their files in regards to any sort of treatment. But um, one major negative of that is that sometimes people get cured, right? And sometimes you want certain things. Sometimes you want to forget. Sometimes it's beneficial for you to forget, you know, where if you have some sort of illness that gets recorded on the blockchain, maybe in the future, doctors will not be willing to sit and look through your entire file to find out what's wrong if you have a problem in the future. And they're more likely to just dismiss it based on some really, really old diagnosis. Mm. Yeah. So the, all things that the technologists and developers and hopefully the policymakers are working on right now well, for I us. Hope, I hope they're, they're working on, you know, fail saves and, and something to save us against that. And again, there is uh, there are good things about anonymity or having anonymity. Mm-hmm. You hope that it's not abused by people, but again, it, it does have its time and place. I'd like to turn now to some of the uh, demographics of blockchain participation. Oh, okay. According to CoinDance, as of May 2018, almost 95% of the Bitcoin community engagement and active participation comes from men. Right. And only 5% from women. Right. In October of 2017, a survey conducted by a Reddit user found that 96% of Ether users are men, and my Ether wallet reported that 84% of their wallet holders were male. And one study actually attributed the discrepancy between the amount of men and women involved in cryptocurrency to gender differences. Gender differences, meaning? So, so what, what, it, what it said is, quote, Stress amplifies gender differences in strategies during risky decisions, with males taking more risk and females less risk under stress, unquote. Oh, wow. Um, What are your thoughts on that theory? Well, obviously, I think it's ridiculous, right? But yeah, the numbers don't lie, and they're also not very surprising. I, uh, you know, my background is in finance, so coming from the finance world, you see this a lot. The traders are usually always male. People in finance are usually mostly male. So it's a very male-dominated field. So again, this, as a reflection of our society, it's just, it's not very surprising. But what I do enjoy most about the blockchain space is that, you know, maybe it's because it's new technology and everyone's so open-minded, but I kind of feel like the blockchain space has been very open and very welcoming of women. You know, it hasn't evened out the numbers, but they've been very open to having blockchain organizations for women, having, you know, summits only for women. They've been more open to that than a lot of other domains. Were those organized by women or organized by the men in the field? I'm curious. Um, Organized by the women and also supported by a lot of the men. Huh. Okay. Yeah. So again, very surprising. You know, you spend too much time in the blockchain space and you kind of forget that in other domains, uh, people are a little bit more unforgiving Mm -hmm. of 
any attempt to try to include more women. So blockchain has been described, or blockchain, blockchain technology, I should say, has been described as the fastest and largest accumulation and redistribution of wealth in history. How effectively can we realize the promise of blockchain technology if gender inclusion and diversity is not a deliberate part of its growth? Aren't we just reenacting some of the existing paradigms in mature private sector industries? Reenacting, definitely. But blockchain and cryptocurrency, all of that is in its very, very, very far infancy. It's still so young. And there is a huge transfer of wealth going on and transfer of power. And so this is a great opportunity for women to come in and take advantage of that transfer. What suggestions do you have to get more women and people of color involved? And, and have you seen any uh, interest by funders or investors or other organizations where they're actually deliberately you know, going out and identifying potential blockchain startups by women or other ideas? There, there's a handful of venture funds out there who are very keen on supporting companies with women founders uh-huh. uh, or companies that do X, Y, and Z and are run by women. So it's been, it's been nice to see. A little surprising, but nice to see. So at the same time, though, co-founder and CEO of Lightning Labs, Elizabeth Stark, has pushed back against the narrative of, quote, women in crypto and has suggested instead that journalists should stop writing about the gender imbalance in crypto and focus instead on writing on the work that they're doing. Yes. What do you think about that? I'm kind of sort of in, gre- in agreement with that because I actually never noticed the gender imbalance coming from you know where I've come from being in other domains. I didn't notice it until I got into the blockchain space and then met other women activists. And they would sit me down and say, this is a problem. That's a problem. And I would describe my experiences in finance. And I didn't think anything of it because I thought, wow, you know, this is just, this is just how it is. It is what it is. And they would sit me down and say, actually, that's not okay. Also, we've had this Me Too movement Mm -hmm. going on kind of concurrently since last October so it's just been a very interesting time. But again, in regards to your question, like, uh, how, do you feel like there should be basically a reference to the systemic reasons why there's been gender disparity in this field, you know, which of course are informed by similar reasons that have contributed to gender disparity in general, right? Across right. all industries. Yeah, well, you might be mad at me for saying this. But <laughs> I, yeah, again, um, because I haven't noticed for very long that, that there was a discrepancy and didn't really care. And actually, if I ever noticed it subconsciously, I always used it to my advantage. So I'm a big believer in meritocracy and getting by on, you know, and it, it seems kind of sad for me to say that because I've done so well in blockchain because I am a woman in blockchain. And so, you know, it's just always surprised me how much more attention I've gotten versus somebody say like my brother, who's done just as much work and different and more important works in some ways than I have, that he won't get the same, I guess, recognition because he's not, quote unquote, a woman in blockchain. 
Do you have some practical suggestions to girls and women out there who are listening about how they can get involved, even if they're not interested in starting their own blockchain company? Right. You know, how, how do they get into the space and participate in, in the you know, wealth creation that's, that's taking place? For those who are just very, very uh, not in the space at all, I think they should definitely go out and find a, a crypto buddy and have them have them inducted into the space, get them to open up their own accounts and purchase their own crypto and to experience some of the technology that we have out there right now and just get involved. Okay, sounds good. And if I have any personal questions, I'm going to look to you. (laughs) So we've come to the end of our conversation and I have created an engendered questionnaire in the spirit of James Lipton and Inside Their Actor Studio oh. that I asked all my guests. <laughs> cool, right? First question, what is at stake in this struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? It's important, I think, for people to feel safe. So it's nice to have that, recognize that, that this is a problem and that if any issue were to arise, you have places where you can go. Because I know uh, nowadays... That's not necessarily true, even in this day and age, and even in a first world country such as what we're living in. What gives you hope? Seeing this massive transfer of wealth, just being very surprised that people are now coming out of nowhere and doing amazing things with this life-changing technology, essentially. And to our listeners... What can they do more of, less of, start or stop to be part of the solution? I guess maybe to be more open-minded in regards to the different solutions that are coming out, the different philosophies. One of the best things about being in the crypto space is whenever you go to a party, first of all, 60% of you, after they hear that you're doing anything with crypto, they're going to you know, stop speaking to you and start avoiding you for the rest of the night. But, Wait, why is that? Oh, I have no idea. It's very, <laughs> it's very polarizing. It's very polarizing. Maybe they're intimidated. Uh, I don't know. They think it's some big scam or, you know, whatever it is they're thinking. I haven't had the chance to chase after them and ask them about that, but I will do that right away. But yeah, what it does is it opens up these philosophical discussions everywhere you go as to uh, what is value? What is currency? What makes Bitcoin an actual currency or what gives it its value? You know, just these great discussions that people really sit and engage in. And I think what saddens me is when you find somebody who's very dismissive and who says, you know what, it's just a scam, period. End of discussion. Let's not go into any anymore. I'm right and you're wrong. And let's just leave it at that. And so I've seen a lot of that, unfortunately. Sounds a lot like what's happening in our political space. Oh, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Hmm. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Kat. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, absolutely, Terry. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It. The mission of Can Do It is to connect human service providers with the resources they need to empower their clients to be safe, healthy, housed, educated, employed, advised, and secure. CanDoIt helps to bridge the service gap and can be found at K-A-N-D-U-I-T 
www.thepowerofpositivityradio.com. Can do it. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Thank you.